And as you're taking your seats, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 3. Martin Luther, the great reformer, did and said much for the cause of Christ. God used him to be a catalyst to move the church away from a dead, complacent, aberrant kind of Christianity into a healthy, vibrant, life-giving Christianity. He was used greatly by God to bring reform to the church, to protest the abuses of the Catholic Church, and to restore Christ, and to restore the gospel, and to restore the word of God to its proper place in the fellowship of the saints. His writings have had a profound impact on the church for 500 years now. But perhaps nothing he wrote had as much impact on his soul than what he wrote only a couple of days before his death. A truth that he believed certainly from the moment that he placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. After he had died, a small piece of paper was found in his pocket upon which he had written this simple yet profound sentence. We are all beggars. This is true. His point was simple, but it was powerful. We have nothing to offer God. We can't climb to God by our own righteousness. We can't get to God by our own efforts. We cannot be good enough. We can't merit our salvation and a righteous status with God. We can't do enough penance. We can't pray enough prayers. We can't perform many acts of, enough acts of self-denial not enough meditation and contemplation and separation from the world, all things that he was saturated with at the time that Jesus Christ opened his eyes to the simple and profound truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot atone for our sin. We cannot make our sick souls well. We are all like the cripple in this story in Acts chapter 3. We were all like him, helpless, hopeless. We all sit like him in one sense. And hopefully we're brought to the place where we sit like him and ask for God to do a mighty work in our lives, asking that God might have mercy upon us, that we would be helped by the only one who can truly help us, by the only one who can offer us what we truly need. Peter and John have been pressing this point, and as the story has unfolded, you'll remember that Peter and John were on their way to the temple at the time of prayer, and thousands upon thousands of Jews were entering into the temple at this time of worship and this time of prayer. And sitting outside the gate was this man, this man who had been crippled from birth. He sat there asking for alms. He was hopeless. He was at the whims of those who would be merciful to him. And as he sat there, he asked for people to help him, to give him alms. And Peter and John looked intently at him and said, Silver and gold I do not have to you, but what I give to you, take and receive today. And he calls him in the name of Jesus Christ to stand. Everybody is amazed at this miracle as this man whom they all know is instantly, miraculously, supernaturally brought to his feet. And Peter and John begin to declare to the people that this is not some power that they have inherent to themselves. It's not because they're good enough or righteous enough. All of this is attributed only to the power that is in the name of Jesus Christ. This is all the name of Jesus Christ. This is all what he has done. And as the crowds are surrounded and Peter is beginning to tell them about the power of Jesus Christ, taking this opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, he confronts them in this moment with guilt and shame of their sin. You see, he shows them that they had actually been responsible for killing the very one they were waiting for. They put to death Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one appointed and anointed by God, God in flesh. And they stand in this moment struck by the reality of what they had done, what they were complicit, complicit in. And the weight of guilt and shame is heavy upon their hearts. And Peter has pressed them into a fork of the road. And as he looks at them, 
he essentially tells them as they look at this fork in the road that they must choose a way. What way will we choose when we are confronted with Jesus Christ? To the unbeliever, the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ, maybe you're hearing of Jesus Christ for the first time. The question for you this morning is, what will you do with this Jesus Christ? Which way will you go? Will you choose his way or will you choose your own way? As followers of Jesus Christ, we're faced with this reality every day, right? Just like Joshua stood before the people of God after he had presented to them the blessings of obedience for following the word of God and the curses for disobedience and diverting away from the word of God, he said to them, choose this day whom you will serve. So to every one of us, every day we wake up is an opportunity to wrestle with that question, who will I serve today? When confronted by the reality of our sin, we all must choose if we will submit and surrender and serve Jesus Christ or if we will turn away from him in rejection. And so forced into this position, they're now forced to consider the reality of their decision, the decision that lies before them, and maybe for you, the decision that lies before you today, and he asks them to consider a few things. Let's read the text together. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. We'll get a running start. He says this, he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who have come after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed." God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He forces them to consider the reality of the decision that they must make. And the first thing he wants them to consider is this, the blessings of repentance. The blessings that come from turning back to God. And we touched upon verse 19 a little bit last week. But the doctrine of repentance is such a crucial doctrine. It's crucial not only to salvation, but crucial to a fruitful Christian life and existence that it's really no problem for us to keep revisiting this theme. We need to hear it often. We need to be reminded of the power of repentance. And in verse 19, you'll see that Peter, he really gives two commands that emphasize the same reality. One is negative, the other is positive. He tells them first in that negative sense to repent and in the positive sense to turn. We've looked at the word repent in a lot of detail over the past few weeks, but just a quick reminder, to repent literally means to do a 180, to be walking in a certain direction, to stop and turn and walk in the other direction. It is a radical change in life, a radical reorientation of life that is required and that Peter is putting before the people. You see, they had been walking in complete rejection of Jesus Christ all the way to the point of rejecting him and murdering him. And now he's saying you have to move in the total opposite direction, not simply, no longer rejecting, but rather embracing and accepting Remember, the guilt and the conviction that they must have experienced in this moment would be so heavy. The realization of what they have done has struck them maybe like it never had before and never would in the future. They had thought that they had destroyed all hope of any kind of blessing in this messianic age. They had missed the Messiah. They had turned away from their Savior. It's helpful to understand that true repentance isn't just recognizing that you're going the wrong way. 
Some people confuse the idea of repentance with simply acknowledging, yeah, okay, I'm doing something wrong, or I've done something wrong, or I've been going in the wrong direction. That's only half of repentance. Repentance is about not simply recognizing you're going the wrong way, but abandoning the wrong way and adopting the right way. And that's why Peter, the clarion call he gives is not only to stop walking like this, but he makes it so clear, he says, now turn again to God. Turn away, he says, from disobedience and wickedness. Confess your wrongdoing and confess the sins that you have committed. Give up your sins and turn to the new way of life that's offered to you, a new way of life that is controlled not by your sin and slavery to it, but by faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to God. Repentance, you can think of it like this, is the key that unlocks not only the door of salvation, but the door of God's blessings within salvation. For the Christian, repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. It's the key to growing deeply and steadily into the character of Jesus Christ. In other words, if I could put it like this, if you are a person that does not find repentance as being a normal part of your life, you will be a person who is spiritually stunted in your growth. The two go hand in hand. You cannot make leaps and strides in your spiritual growth unless you find that there is increasing amounts of repentance happening in your life ongoing acknowledgement of sin and going to God and seeking his forgiveness. There are three blessings that flow from repentance that Peter highlights, and we're going to look at each one of them. The first is this, and this is such sweet motivation to repentance, total forgiveness. Total, absolute forgiveness. We looked at this a little bit last week, but again, I just think it's so important we revisit this. Notice what it says in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins might be wiped away, that they might be erased. And in the ancient world, this word, this word picture had a vivid imagery in mind. You see, they wrote on pieces of papyri and pieces of vellum, which are animal skin that is stretched and dried. But the kind of ink that they used was not like the kind of ink we used. It had no acidic factor to it, and so it didn't seep into the paper. It kind of rested on top of the paper. If I could give you maybe a more modern day analogy, it would be like a dry erase board. Or it would just kind of rest there, and at any point in time, they could take that parchment paper, or they could take that vellum, and they could simply get a wet rag or a wet sponge and wipe away and leave no trace of the writing that was on it. And if you can just think of a minute what's being said here, it's so incredibly powerful. The parallel here is your life of sin. I mean, you, just, you think of a dry erase board, a giant dry erase board, and you just start thinking right now in the giant categories, the larger categories of sin in your life. Maybe you think of the anger or the pride or the lack of self-control. Maybe you can think of the, the lust and the sinful desires. Maybe there's gossip and slander and covetousness and jealousy. And then you just take those broad buckets and you begin to think about those things and you begin to think about the manifestations of those in your life. When you spend your time doing the sin you've dabbled in, the people you've hurt. And the image is this, all of that is before your face. And in an instant, with genuine repentance, it's like God takes a a, a dry erase wiper and just, just cleanses the whole thing as if it never even existed. Colossians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus, he literally took our certificate of debt, a piece of paper that had all of our offenses against God, every single one of them in all of their gory detail. And Colossians says that on the cross, as Jesus hung there, our certificate of debt, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, was nailed to the cross. And stamped upon that is the declaration, paid in full. picture that we have before us is that there is no sin, listen, there is no sin that God cannot cleanse totally. I think of David in Psalm 51, after he had committed adultery, after he had committed murder, this plea to God in Psalm 51 verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my guilt. 
This picture of washing away is symbolically evidenced in baptism. And when we celebrate baptism, this picture of going under the water symbolizes both our death to our old self and being brought forth in the new life of Jesus Christ. It symbolizes a being unified with Jesus. But listen, the water is incredibly important and incredibly significant. Paul says this in Acts 22, 16. And now why do you wait? This is after he's preached the gospel. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. You see, calling on the name of Jesus guarantees that your sins are washed away completely. They disappear without a trace. They are utterly eradicated. They are totally obliterated. One author says this, I love this. They are gone beyond the possibility of review or recall. Isn't that amazing? You will listen in Christ. You will never stand before God and he will take out your sins like you've done maybe to so many in your life or have done, been done to you and you will never hear these words. Look at what you've done. Look at what you've done. You will never hear words of condemnation for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. We stand forgiven. We stand free, cleansed of all of our sin. So how does he do that? Well, remember, listen, God doesn't just wink at our sin. You know what I mean by that? God doesn't just look at our sin and sweep it under a carpet and pretend like it doesn't exist. God doesn't wink at our sin. God pays fully for our sin. All of our sin, that certificate of debt, symbolizes the reality that on Jesus Christ, on the cross, all of our sins were paid for in full. The complete penalty is done away with because Christ suffered in our place. The second blessing that flows from repentance, notice this, is this spiritual refreshment. Spiritual refreshment, he says this in verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now that is such a powerful statement because right now in this moment they have recognized that they are very, very far from the presence of the Lord. They have actually denied the presence of the Lord by denying Jesus Christ. There is no presence of the Lord in their lives. All of their religious external duties have done nothing to bring them near to God because they have rejected the only way to be brought near to God. Now they're hearing that there can be times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. They can be reunited with the presence of the Lord, brought into a relationship with God. Times of refreshing is a unique phrase and one that there's a little bit of confusion about if you read all the commentaries and try and sift through what this might mean. But the basic meaning of the word refreshing is, is this. I can give you a word picture. It's like sitting in the scorching heat of the sun, literally being beat up by the sun, and then a nice cool breeze comes and relieves the pain that you are feeling. It's like that breath of fresh air. The word is used in Exodus 8.11 to talk about a God bringing relief from the plagues, the, in particular the plague of the frogs that were just dominating the land. When God removed them, there was this sense of relief. In literature, Jewish literature outside of the Bible, it's used to speak of the final messianic times of Israel's redemption. In other words, the nation of Israel, they, they looked towards a future day when God was going to bring a refreshing time for the people of God, for the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, God promised Israel would have rest from their enemies when they walked in obedience. But the history of Israel, if you know the history of Israel, it's a devastating history where God has, he said, I will bless you, I will give you rest, I will give you everything you need, but you need to walk in obedience to me. And the story of Israel is their constant turning away from God, their constant running towards other idols, their constant living in sin. And God said, if you choose to do that, then you're gonna reap the consequences of your actions. My presence will leave you, and it did. You will be subject to all kinds of consequences for your sin that all are a gift of my grace to remind you that you have turned away from me and that only I can bring you back and bring you relief. This is the picture. 
There have been centuries up to this point in the nation of Israel, centuries of oppression, of turmoil, and of unrest. They are currently, at the time of Jesus, living under Roman oppression and Roman rule, wanting to be liberated and set free, given rest from their enemies. They rightly believed that the Messiah was the one who would ultimately provide a lasting rest for them. They wrongly believed it was mainly a physical rest. They missed the spiritual refreshment that was in store in this phase in God's program. This idea of the times of refreshing, it links us back to Acts chapter 1. So just flip a page or so back in your Bible to Acts chapter 1. There was already in the disciples' minds an anticipation of this kind of rest and refreshment. And they were longing for it, and rightly so, and Jesus didn't shut them down. He just told them that they, they didn't understand the divine timeline involved. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples are with Jesus at this point. This is before his exaltation into heaven. It says, so when they, came, they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice that word time. And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, it's not that you're wrong, it's just you, you misunderstand the timeline. And they linked in their mind the restoration of the kingdom of Israel to this time of restoration and refreshment that was to be taking place. So this word times in one sense is used to speak of the set time when the kingdom will come back to earth and be restored to Israel and this was the Jewish messianic expectation. They believed that the Messiah would come when Israel, by the way, had a mass national repentance and turning back to God. And this, by the way, is the exact thing that the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. In a discussion about, about the placement of Israel in God's plan and bringing about this future coming kingdom, here's what Paul says in Romans eleven twenty five. 25. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. The Messiah would come again and he would restore his kingdom to Israel. And notice where this refreshment comes from, the presence of the Lord. That's what the text tells us. This, this future time of refreshment will come in full when Jesus comes and establishes the fullness of his kingdom. There's a sense in which this is pointing to this future spiritual refreshment, but what you need to see too is that there is also a pointing towards the promise of a present personal spiritual refreshment. If I could use this word, there's the expectation of a pre-fillment of what's to come. Right now, what is offered to those who repent is the experience, a microcosm of what that future, final, full refreshment will look like. Some of the blessings of that future era can be enjoyed now by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. What is offered to those who repent is not only total forgiveness of sins, but the gift of the presence of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Remember, they've just witnessed the unleashing of the Spirit of God. And they've been asking questions about what all of this means and looks like. This is good news for those of us who are in Christ and even for those of you maybe who don't know Christ, that there is a refreshing that can come to your soul. And part of this is important because we need to understand the effects of sin on our lives, the effects of sin on our hearts and on our souls. You see, sin has a devastating effect on us. Sin does not bring refreshment to our souls. It actually ruins our souls. Sin overpromises and underdelivers. Sin makes us think that we'll find satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose and meaning and identity and all the kind of things that we're never supposed to find in that. Instead, it ends up destroying us Sin is crushing. 
Sin is a crushing weight upon our shoulders. It is a burden to bear. Sin is controlling. It is a vicious taskmaster that keeps us in bondage, that keeps us controlled, doing things that we are ashamed of and humiliated by. Sin is corrupting. It destroys everything around us. It touches every facet of our lives. It destroys our relationships, and it begins to hollow us out from the inside. It leaves us empty. And it blinds us to the source of true joy. It leaves us feeling hopeless and bankrupt and destitute. And if you're a Christian, there's a reason why you might not be experiencing the presence of the Lord in your life. It could be because you're living and dabbling in sin. I have no doubt in my mind that there are some of you in here, you know, when I describe the effects of sin in your life, you're sitting here and you know exactly what that feels like. Some of you, even in this moment, know what it feels like to have the burden and weight of sin upon your back. You know the weight it is right now. It is just dragging you down further and further. You know what it is to be in bondage to sin because you're living it, you're being controlled by it, and part of you, you, you want out so badly, but you're so trapped Some of you are seeing the way sin is destroying your relationships. Some of you are experiencing the emptiness and the devastation in your own heart in life. So what do I do? See, repentance is the key to finding the spiritual refreshment for your soul that you long for. Repentance is excuse me, sin cuts us off from experiencing the presence of God in our lives. It interrupts and interferes with our relationship and fellowship with God. It quenches the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. And repentance is the key to drawing near to God. James talks about this in James chapter four. He says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. But if you read that entire chapter, what you see is this. Your sin has driven a wedge between you and God. And until you weep, mourn, and wail, until you're broken over your sin, and until you turn in repentance, you cannot draw near to God. But through the act of repentance, through the act of believing in the forgiveness that Jesus provides, as you draw near to God, God draws near to you. Your soul is refreshed because the presence of the Lord is unleashed in your life. The burden is lifted. The freedom from slavery is possible. You can be filled up and you can have joy. Listen, you can have the true joy that your heart longs for through repentance in Jesus Christ. Tim Keller says this, so helpful. He says, while there, are always, there is always some bitterness and grief and repentance, isn't that true in our lives? Well, there is always some bitterness and grief in repentance. Deeper realizations of sin lead to greater assurances of his grace. The more we know we are forgiven, the more we repent, the faster we grow and change, the deeper our humility and our joy. How badly do we want that? This is a call for daily repentance that brings spiritual refreshment to our souls. I wonder, I wonder, is that evident in your life? Do you go through your life during the day identifying sin as it's happening or as you've looked back and seen it or even in the moment, are you able to identify it, to confess it, and to forsake it? Uh, do you end your days in a time of prayer with God just simply saying, God, would you show me areas of sin in my life that I didn't see today? And God, would you help me to see them so that I might confess them to you so that I might walk in the freedom and power of the Spirit of God so that I might know the sweetness and the joy of the forgiveness of my sins? You see, forgiveness brings not, excuse me, repentance brings total forgiveness. It brings spiritual refreshment. And finally here, it brings universal restoration. And we've touched briefly on this already. There's a lot of overlap with the concept of refreshment in the future. The repentance of Israel in particular would bring about the time of restoration that they anticipated. Verse 20, it says this, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And so the picture is this. Here is Jesus. He's gone into heaven, and there he sits and he waits. 
And he waits out this time period that we are living in now until the time where he will return and restore all the things that the Old Testament prophesied would come to pass. The return of Jesus will follow as we've already looked at in Romans chapter 11, not only the gathering of the fullness of the Gentiles, God is saving people right now. This is the, the age of salvation where God is gathering people from every tribe and tongue and nation. But one day, listen, from all of that, all, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 11, God is making the Jewish people jealous. He is saving all of these Gentiles and they are participating in the covenantal blessings that God promised to his people, Israel, and they're gonna be jealous over that and long for what was supposed to be theirs too. And there will be a time of national turning when all Israel, that remnant that is left, will turn and look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They will recognize that they denied and rejected the Messiah. And then Jesus will come and he will bring restoration to the earth. He will bring what he promised for Israel. He will become their king. He will return and he will dwell upon the earth. He will reign and rule here on earth. And Israel will have a prominent place in God's plan. But listen, all the nations will participate in this restoration. Sin has cursed and stained this earth. Everything we see is not the way God intended it to be. It is distorted it is chaotic. Every fiber of creation cries out for restoration back into its original design for its original purposes and its original beauty. And one day that is coming when Jesus returns, he will not only restore Israel, but he will set right all that this curse has done to this earth. He will reverse it all entirely. And here's why this matters for you and me. We so often are content with instant gratification in this life. We're so short-sighted in terms of what is ours and, and what could be ours if you don't know Christ. Sometimes you know, the offer of Christ for the, the blessings now seem inconsequential, but listen, if you're long-sighted, you will recognize that what is in store for you is utterly astounding and unprecedented. When Jesus Christ returns, all those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, all those who have repented and trusted in him, listen to this. When he brings that kingdom, you will be a part of that kingdom. And that kingdom, listen, will be marked by peace. It will be marked with joy. It will be marked with holiness. It will be marked with God's glory, with God's comfort, with safety. It will be marked by the presence of Jesus Christ himself. It will be marked with health and prosperity. There will be freedom from oppression. This miracle, the healing of this crippled man, listen, it, it anticipates this ultimate healing of not only humanity, but the entire universe. All of created order will one day be set right when Jesus Christ returns. And that's, that's what Peter says has always been known. He says God had spoken of these things by the mouth of his prophets long ago. God has always said there is a time coming when everything will be set right. This is your future inheritance if you're in Christ. So well, what about those who don't? What about those who don't repent of their sins and, and, and receive the blessings of repentance? Well, that's what Peter goes to next. Notice this, he presents to them the warning of rejection. He presents the warning of rejection. In verse 22, he appeals to Moses and what Moses wrote. And he essentially, he quotes Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and also Leviticus chapter 23. Look at what he says here. It says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Deuteronomy chapter 18 is a description of the kind of prophet that God promised them. 
And a little bit of context for Deuteronomy chapter 18 is helpful. Now, Moses, by the way, is the one who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's referred to as the Pentateuch. Israel in Deuteronomy 18 is told that after they enter into the promised land, that they are to dispossess the nations. They're to get rid of everybody, all the people who live there who worship pagan gods and who have vile, evil, wicked, sinful practices are to be driven out of the land. The people there are those who are characterized by, uh, by, as idol worshipers and, and these nations, Deuteronomy 18 reminds us this, they, they listen to diviners, to sorcerers, all things that Israel must not do and must never participate in. God says, contrary to the way these pagan nations function, uh, appealing to false gods who are no gods at all and, and demonically influenced guidance, he says, I want you to go into that land and I want you to worship me alone and I want you to walk in obedience to my truth. But here's the problem. You see, Moses had led them out of deliverance from Egypt. He had guided them through the wilderness and he had been the, he had been the prophet. He was the first prophet. He stood as an intermediary between God and man. He went up onto the mountain and he met with God face to face and God instructed him on how the people of God ought to live and to remain in a relationship with him. How they can live in the presence of a holy God and if they were to do that and believe and obey the words that Moses said to them, they would have a a fully functioning, thriving, healthy relationship with God. His presence would actually come down and dwell in their midst, in the temple. But as they looked at the promised land, Moses was not allowed to go with them, you remember? He had disobeyed God and God said, I'm sorry Moses, not even you get off the hook for disobedience and you will not be able to take the people into the promised land. Instead, you are to pass the torch to Joshua and he will lead the people into the promised land. So people in in that time, they're thinking, well, what now? Without Moses, what will we do? Who will speak to us for God? How will we know what God wants for us? Well, God told Moses to go and tell the people that they can expect that there will be a succession of prophets that would follow after Moses and they would be raised up and they would speak for God. And even in Deuteronomy 18, it's given us uh, the, 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 the test for a true prophet and if, he, if he, his prophecies do not come to pass, then you're supposed to put him to death because he doesn't actually speak for God. And we see throughout the Old Testament that there is a succession of prophets that God provided to speak to his people. But what's so fascinating is Deuteronomy 18 tells us that one like Moses, and the implication is one greater than Moses, one who does the things that Moses has done, one who has the kind of intimacy with God that Moses had, he will come and he will lead us. So the succession of prophets points ultimately to one final prophet, one greater prophet, But what's interesting, and flip back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. It's, again, the fifth book of the Bible. It's right after the book of Numbers. I want you to to look at the way that the book of Deuteronomy ends in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Verse 9, let's, let's look at it together. It says this, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, so that the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Boom, done, that's it. Like he, he leaves them on this cliffhanger reminding, listen, this is so intentional. He's reminding them of Deuteronomy 18 where he promised that there would be a prophet like Moses, one who would meet face to face with God. One who would perform the same kinds but greater of signs and wonders. One who would bring a greater deliverance, listen, than Moses brought from Egypt. 
But he lands on this point here. Up until this point in the nation of Israel, there is none. Where is this prophet? He has not come. We've seen no one like Moses until, this is what Peter's point is, until right now. This Jesus whom you crucified, he is the one. His signs and wonders trumped, he trumped Moses. Moses had nothing compared to him. Talk about meeting face to face. He dwelled with God in eternity, in eternal glory. He is God himself. And he will not just lead you out of bondage, humanly speaking. He will lead you out of the bondage and slavery of sin. Verse 22. As Peter is driving this, look, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Moses said, the Lord would raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and here's the point, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. This was an epic fail for the nation of Israel. They would not listen. They would not heed. Instead, they took him and they mocked him. They beat him, they scourged him, and they hung him on a tree like a common criminal. What's interesting is verse 23. He ties in this quote from Leviticus chapter 23 and specifically 23 verse 29. He's kind of supplementing what he's saying and he says, it says, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, here's the, here's the consequence, here's the warnings of rejection, he shall be destroyed from the people. Now, this quote is so fast. I love the way the Spirit of God has woven the Scriptures together in such a beautiful way. This quote from Leviticus 23, 29, listen to this, originally dealt with those in Israel who refused to observe the Day of Atonement. The day that they celebrated to look forward to the time when God would give a lamb who would take away their sins. And anyone who refused on that day to deny themselves or to fast, on that day, if they did that, they were to be rooted out, to be totally cut off from the people of God. They were to be placed outside of the family of God. And the word literally means they are to be utterly destroyed. This is the great warning for those who encounter Jesus Christ and will not surrender to him. It's not like life just goes on as normal. It's not as if your eternity will be uninterrupted. It means everything. There's so much talk these days about being on the wrong side of history. Have you heard that phrase in the media? It's, it's used so often right now by our, our you know, the, the, in a political sense and in a cultural sense when speaking of the, the current, the sexual revolution that's going on at just a warp speed right now, right? With all the transgender movement and the, you know, the, the, the gay marriage, all of those things. And, and here's what the, the critics of Christianity keep using to try and force the church and force those who are, are not in line with their way of thinking to capitulate and to compromise. They keep saying, you are on the wrong side of history. And in other words, look, look, down the road, when the history books are written, it will be shown that you are on the wrong side. You chose the wrong path. You chose the wrong option. We're all heading in this direction. And these few, you narrow-minded Christians, you won't get on the same page. And in the end, you will be humiliated. You will be laughed at. Listen, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many are there that find it. But narrow is the road, and narrow is the gate that leads to life. I am unconcerned about being on the wrong side of history as humanity will write it. The question we need to be considering is this, are we gonna be on the right side of eternity? Let me ask you today. If you were to die right now, and if you were to stand before God, the judge of this universe, do you have confidence that your sins will be wiped away and that you will enter into his presence to live in the blessings and joy of fellowship with him? You cannot have that assurance unless you have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other path. There is one narrow road. There is one individual who makes that road possible to walk upon, and his name is Jesus Christ. Peter is letting the reality of future destruction sit heavy upon his hearers. And that's because of what he wants to happen next. He wants to press upon them the urgency of response. Whenever you hear the gospel, listen, I don't care if you're a Christian or an unbeliever, whenever you hear the gospel, whenever you read the word of God, there is an, you, you need to kind of envision an RSVP at the top of the page of the Bible or just in, the, in your mind as you're hearing the truth of God's word, there is always required of us who hear the truth of God's word a response. And here Peter, he presses into them this idea that Moses wasn't the only prophet who predicted the Christ. And they respected and they admired and they loved Moses. He was seen as the prototypical prophet. But, but here Peter just kind of stacks this case up. And in verse 24, he wants them to know that it wasn't just Moses. He says, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Samuel was considered uh, the first prophet after Moses. Moses being the first prophet, Samuel was the second, and his point is, is very clear. Listen, there hasn't been a prophet since Moses who has said anything different. They've all said the same thing. They've all pointed towards this one reality, the hope that comes from trusting in Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins. It was all focused there. This was the constant refrain of the prophets. They were all hoping for and pointing to the Messiah. They all spoke of a coming period of forgiveness, of refreshment, of restoration. I think it's important too that he mentioned Samuel. We studied through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel a few years back now. And in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read of the promise that God made specifically to David. King David, that he would establish a future king from David's dynasty as an eternal king in Israel. And you have to kind of keep in mind that at this point in time, Israel was being kept in this kind of a holding pattern, that they were waiting for these days. They were waiting for this king who would sit and rule and reign upon the throne of David. They were waiting for this prophet like Moses. And it had been a long, long wait. And so Peter is injecting a sense of urgency into the situation. He's saying, look, it's not time anymore to wait. Stop looking for the coming Messiah. He's come and you have put him to death. You have rejected him. You have denied him. You have handed him over. But now is the time to turn. Now is the moment that God is extending to you. Yes, you, even you, who are guilty of crucifying the Lord of glory, even you can be saved this day. What hope and grace. Verse 25 Again, this urgency, but this, 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 see the hope in this. See the, see the attempt to open their blind eyes. You are the sons of the prophets. You come from rich heritage. You come from those who spoke the word of God to you and your people. And, and you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. God made you promises saying specifically to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is the pivotal promise in the Old Testament. Where God in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 18, he spoke to Abraham and, and he called him to follow him by faith and he promised him amongst a couple of other things, but primarily the, the centerpiece of this covenant that God made with Abraham, through your seed, one of your offspring will come and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by him. In other words, listen, he's the answer to humanity's problem. He is the solution to the problem of sin. He is the hope of Israel, and he is the hope of the nations. He is this Jesus Christ. Notice verse 26. Again, such grace. 
God having raised up his servant, he sent him to you first. This is after you killed him. God loves you so much that even after you killed the one he sent to rescue you, he came back for you. He didn't abandon you like he should have. He didn't kind of say, fine, fine, you don't want me? I'm out of here. I'll go to people who will. I've come to you first. I'm giving you a second chance. And notice why he's coming to them first. Notice this, to bless you. I love that. When God asks you to surrender your life to him, he's not doing it to hurt you. He's doing it to bless you. Some of you, you're running after sin so fast and so furious and you've been pursuing sin. And you think that somehow it's gonna bless you and somehow that God's putting stipulations on the fun that you wanna have when ultimately what God is saying, look, when you come to me and when you submit to me, when you follow me, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm coming to help you. I'm not coming to kill your fun. I'm, kinda, I'm coming to give you more joy than you can ever experience anywhere else. I'm coming to bless you. to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This suffering servant has been raised up to fulfill God's plan of salvation. There's no more waiting. There's no more waiting. The time is now. He's here for you. Listen, some of you in here, you've been running from God and, and you've heard this message before, some of you, and, and you've resisted it and you've rejected it in the past and you know, maybe you've given lip service to the gospel and you've said, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm just gonna live my life anyways. And right now, God in his grace is calling you to turn from your wickedness and his desire is to bless you. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's desire is to bless you and his desire and his way of doing that, by the way, is to remove the curse and stain and penalty of sin to refresh and to revive your soul and to give you the hope of promised restoration in his presence forevermore. So his servant, to do this, his servant had to come. And his body was torn and his blood was shed for you and it was shed for me. And God, having raised up his servant because death could not hold him down, sent him first to Israel, but now to the ends of the earth. So from one beggar to another. If you don't know Jesus Christ, would you turn to him today? Would you turn and find Forgiveness and freedom and life in Jesus Christ. And for you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, from one beggar to another, if you've been walking in sin, would you turn to Jesus Christ today and find the forgiveness, the refreshment that your soul desperately longs for and desperately needs? Now, as we walk out into this world, it's so helpful to keep in mind that we are simply beggars telling other beggars where they can come and find bread. Let us bring them to Jesus Christ. Amen? Let us bring them to Jesus Christ. Let us show them how precious is the flow that makes us white as snow.